0: Uh, I have a long piece on this called White Thread in a Browning America. If you would like to read more of my endless my divisive here.
1: battles over ethnic identity until America is subsumed by war. That's as we <laughs> <And have laughs> that'll bring <laughs> us all together, that'll end <laughs> the polarization.
2: Um, I'm looking forward to the book. <laughs>
1: Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. There was Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Uh, We are getting ready to end the year.
2: Last Weeds of the Year.
1: It's been a year. So we're going to do some. It's been many years. (laughs) I don't know. Depends Uh, how you measure it. So we're going to do some reflections, some year endy type stuff, you know, sit back, ponder expansively. The the first thing we, we wanted to talk about is
0: what have we learned this year? Ezra, what have you learned? So I learned a lot about political identity this year. Part of that was because of what was going on in politics. Part of it is because of this book I'm working on. But this to me felt really useful for understanding some of the fights this year. And there's a lot of good work here. I'd recommend the Leanna Mason's work on uncivil agreement. I'm going to recommend a white paper later in the episode that, that relates to this too. But I think that we are having a conversation about identity politics. It is pointing at something very real, but getting at it very backwards And what's happening is people are starting with things in politics that they don't like and then tracing them back to the identities that that inflect or, or, or lead to them. And people are saying, that's bad, right? And and they're recognizing that politics is a collision of a lot of different groups and that what, what's coming out of that feels like a problem to people. And I've been really trying to come at this from the other perspective, working upwards from an understanding of identity and how it affects politics and then going up into what our politics looks like now. And I think if you if you do that and you work upward from that research on identity formation, not downward from something in politics you don't like, you actually get a lot of um, useful information. And the big thing that I've come to think about is Democrats and Republicans as being political identities. All the evidence is that over the last 50, 60 years that those kind of core political coalition identities, left, right, red, blue, Democrat and Republican is a good way to talk about it, but not actually think the best way to talk about it because a lot of people who are, say, in the blue coalition do not think of themselves as Democrats, but they vote very regularly for Democrats there's a lot in there that is now merging with race and geography and religion and ideology in ways that 50 years ago were a lot less true. And so we now have what what Mason calls these mega identities. And if you understand politics as being inflected by that and as conflicts is getting absorbed into that, a lot of things make a lot of sense. But something you recognize is that the way in which identity affects politics is really, really profound and almost all-encompassing. It's not that literally everything is identity politics. That goes too far. But there's no politics that doesn't have any kind of identity in it whatsoever because there are no people who don't have that. I have found it to be a really useful model and framework for understanding a lot of the collisions and fights that that, that we're going through.
1: So can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. So I hear this idea sort of all the time about the partisan clash becoming a clash of of identities. And I don't, I mean, I, I don't want to say too much about republicanness as an identity, because I don't, I don't know that many republicans. But it strikes me that among Democrats, there appears to be fairly intense residential and social segregation along racial lines in big blue cities. And then separately, like endless bitchy continuing bernie versus hillary arguments from 2016 which all have their in different ways like strong ideological components it never looks to me like this team spirit of unified like we're all co-partisans together we have this this mm-hmm. shared blue identity but then i do I've seen not as much as you, but, like, I have seen some of this macro research that's, like, yes, people increasingly identify with a a partisan group. But then, like, on the ground, like, I walk around D.C. and, like, black people and white people still seem to me to have very distinct identities, even when they're all Democrats.
0: So a couple things. So one of my little, like – obsessions is that we should talk about identities politics but nobody's going to do that because it's impossible to say and sounds weird (laughs) but we have identity is fractal and we have a lot of them and they change and i think one way to think about it is one of the things that changes them usually the most powerful thing that can activate an identity is a sense of threat and actually this is going to be super relevant to my paper later but You you really feel an identity when you feel that that identity is being challenged and that can happen and change very fast. Right. And and, and, and which identity you feel is being challenged can change. So one of the things that I think might break political polarization in this country is if at some point in the future, there's a war, because if you want to talk about what creates a national American identity War creates a, a, an American identity because the, America, like which is an identity, American is an identity, becomes under threat. Hmm. But so, you know, as you're saying, Matt, there's a lot of red-blue fighting. And when there's red-blue fighting, right, you know, is Obamacare going to get repealed? Within the Democratic coalition, a lot of smaller group collisions and conflicts begin to calm. So when you have that going on, Bernie Sanders is working in lockstep with Chuck Schumer, who's working in lockstep with um, – you know, I don't know, Claire McCaskill, and they're all working to protect Obamacare. And then when you have a primary and you've got the kind of liberal Medicare, for the left Medicare for all contingent and Bernie bros and Hillary people and however you want to call it, then it like ladders down to another thing. And th- this to me is part of why you want to work from going upward, from understanding how identities affect different kinds of politics um, as opposed to downward, because the idea here is not that these politics are all about identity. It's just that understanding the way groups react to threat and understanding the way groups form and what entrenches a group and and how they come together is really useful. And the thing that I think gets to your question, Matt, is that what's been happening over the past 50, 60 years is that the two coalitions are sorting along more of these lines into distinct coalitions. So here's just like one, one good example of this. So in 1960, when Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy run against each other, one in three African-American voters votes for Nixon. Yeah. In whatever it is, 10, 12 years later, when Nixon runs against McGovern, nine out of 10 African-American voters vote for McGovern. So obviously, we can all think about what's happening in that period, Civil Rights Act. I mean, a lot is going on. But religion similarly used to be um, both parties basically were composed of like married white Protestant Christians. And now married white Protestant Christians are heavily concentrated in the Republican Party and and less on the Democratic Party geography. There's a lot less of this rural urban split that there is now. The reason it's important is that um, and, and the reason it is creating stronger and stronger versions of the red blue coalitions is that, as you say, Matt, like people within these coalitions have a lot of distance from each other, oftentimes a lot of disagreements with each other. But the more that like separate conflicts get escalated into something that threatens the whole group the more they begin to bond to each other. So one of the things – there's a huge amount of research on this, but Barack Obama's presidency uh, makes the Democratic Party much more racially liberal, and it makes many people in the Democratic Party much more attentive to different kinds of racial conservatism and and to racial threat, and it does, of course, the opposite in the Republican Party. So one of the things I always find really interesting here, because I find it surprising, is it in polling in the 90s, there was no connection between your level, between how you felt about racial issues in America and how you felt about Bill Clinton's healthcare bill. They were okay. just not related. In 2010, how you felt about race in America and how you felt about Barack Obama's healthcare bill were extremely correlated. And this goes for a huge number of other issues too. And so what's going on is that because the parties of what they represent, because of who's in them, because of what they're fighting over, What's happening is like the, the lines are getting more and more drawn. And so there are conflicts that now call in other members of the coalition that just didn't before. Another version of this, Michael Tessler's done this great research where he shows that there are a lot of racialized controversies in the 90s like O.J. Simpson's trial or the, the Bernard uh, Getz shootings, I think it was, in, in New York that if you polled Republicans and Democrats, they just didn't have different views. And if you looked at those same kinds of controversies in the aughts, the shooting of Trayvon Martin or whether 12 Years a Slave should have won an Oscar, they were extremely different in how Republicans and Democrats polled against them. And so what's happening is not that these groups are all the same or that there are only one group. What's happening is that more parts of the group are responding to a threat to anyone. And so it just becomes clearer and clearer on any given issue, including cultural fights and other things, like which side you're on. Whereas 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, more of these individual conflicts were scattered. They, they didn't, they might've split, you know, white from black or even um, racial liberal from racially conservative, but they wouldn't necessarily have brought in the parties in the way they do now. But when all these conflicts get escalated, and by the way, you see the same thing in religion, all these religious liberty fights that we're having now, you see the same things in issues about gender and sexuality. When it keeps like tapping the same thing, then those red-blue identities get stronger and stronger and stronger because they're under threat so constantly. And because they've like expanded so much of what can threaten them, that's happening in this accelerated and deepening way, and it's really influencing our politics. And I think it's why people have become very conscious of the idea that identity is acting in politics, because it is. It's acting constantly in politics. I think the reason you have that as an increasingly deep dividing line that, that people sense, they're not wrong. But they've come up with a very narrow understanding of it, and, and certainly one of the things that I've been trying to do this year and has been really helpful for me in contextualizing some of these fights and the rise of things like the intellectual dark web and all these, uh, and all this other stuff is trying to build, like, a more comprehensive, like, ground-up view of, like, well, how, how would we predict identity to act in an era like this? Like, what evidence do we have about that? And, yeah, sure enough, it's kind of acting like we think. Cool. What do you learn?
2: Um, I learned a lot this year. Nice. Um, you know. I think
1: we gotta pick like one thing. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise the show doesn't work.
2: I mean, we could keep we could I, I learned a lot about having a kid and all of that. But um the thing I want to talk about here is I learned a lot about emergency rooms. So the big thing I did this year was I um I recently totaled up the number. I read a 1,182 emergency room bills this year. We just
0: take a moment to say, that's great work. Great work.
2: Thank you. Um, Well, I was like plowing through 400 of them, trying to get as many as I could done um, over the past week. It felt like very tiring work. But I read a ton of emergency room bills, and I learned so much from it. You know, the thing I knew before going, so this is the big project I've been doing this year, is looking at emergency room billing and collecting bills from our readers and listeners. I knew before going in that American healthcare was expensive. That was something you know I understood for doing this for a decade. I did not understand all the sort of traps and challenges and really unexpected obstacles you could run into in this battle between insurance and health provider that is essentially playing out in American emergency rooms. I learned you could be charged thousands of dollars just for sitting in an emergency room waiting room, which I did not know before I went into this project. Um, I learned a lot about out-of-network doctors working at in-network hospitals, which is one of these only American things where you you go to an in-network hospital, and it turns out the anesthesiologist, the radiologist, someone you might not even interact with, isn't in your insurance network, and then you're getting bills for thousands of dollars Um, You know, I'm working on a story right now where I'm looking at one hospital in particular that, from what I can tell, is is emergency room is out of network with every single private health insurer, despite ambulances constantly taking people with private insurance to this hospital, and people not realizing that until after the fact and ending up with really expensive bills. I think I understood from a more high-level approach, you know, all these challenges, but I, I don't think I understood just how stacked the deck is against the patient in those situations. So I wrote a longer piece earlier this week that kind of summarizes a lot of things I learned. I think the last thing, you know, I I took away from it is how powerless patients are in fighting these bills. So one of the things I get asked a lot when I do interviews about the project or just when people email me is like, well, how can I prevent a bill or like how can I um, fight this bill that I got? And I almost don't like writing those articles because it feels so shitty to me that it is on the patient to, like, somehow be a good consumer or somehow, like, take the time to fight this when when the, the deck is so stacked against them. One of the things I've learned is that the answer really depends on the hospital you're dealing with. Some will negotiate and some won't. And if you went to a hospital that just doesn't want to negotiate, you can retain legal counsel. But aside from that, you're kind of out of luck. So I, I don't think I realized going in, you know, how— the negotiations, they're gonna be shaped so much by things you you can't even research of like, do you, are you going to a hospital that is okay negotiating medical bills or not? So those are some of the things, things I've learned this year.
0: So I have a question about what one of the overall findings from from your work there, which is your work I think shows this unbelievable and infuriating variation in what happens when people go into an ER. I think in, in your most recent piece, you talk about an ointment that is one dollar in one place. And what was it like 75. 76. Neosporin. 76. Neosporin, right? You know, some people go and sit in an ER and they get charged almost nothing, and some people go and sit in an ER and they get charged five thousand dollars for facility fees. So, you you were talking there about patients. Is there a rhyme or reason in who is getting screwed here? Is there a pattern of? you know, to people with worse insurance who get hit with these fees or, or or you know, the people in a certain region? Or is it really just like it's anybody and, you know, you just got to hope you don't walk into the wrong ER on the wrong day?
2: The people who seem to be at higher risk are people with high deductible health insurance plans. So I think that's one thing I've definitely noticed. If you have a high deductible plan, you're going to be responsible for a larger share of your bill. And those high deductible plans, they tend to be the ones sold on the Obamacare marketplace. They're the ones, you know, that are a little less tend to be paired with lower income jobs, whereas more robust, higher income jobs might have a more robust health insurance offering that has a smaller deductible. So I think that's the biggest risk factor I could pinpoint. But I think anyone is at risk, you know, even people. And I think that's because of these network issues where even people who have a low deductible, you know, go to, you know, I worry about one guy in Texas who woke up unconscious in a, in an emergency room in Austin he had pretty good health insurance, but the thing that kind of snared him was that the jaw surgeon who operated on him was out of network, and then the deductible doesn't really matter anymore. So I think the biggest risk factor I can identify is the size of your deductible, but I don't think, you know, if you have a low deductible plan, it means you're protected. You know, I had to go to the emergency room over the summer, and, like, one of the things I was nervous about was there was a radiologist who was going to read an ultrasound, and, like, I had no way to talk to the radiologist. I never met the radiologist. Um and I have a pretty low deductible plan. And it was kind of like a crapshoot, like hoping that this radiologist was in network, but like being totally unable to research it at the time and just kind of, you know, cross my fingers and hope it turned out OK. All right, Matt, what you got? So I have been
1: reporting more this year than than I have in the traditionally in my career with members of Congress and talking to them and trying to understand what it is that they think they're doing or or hope to do. And I've really been struck. I've I've really come away with a profound sense, this is on on the Democratic side, of how much they don't know what they're doing. They really do not have a plan for how they would like to govern America if elections break their way. They seem very confused by the sort of surging grassroots left and in a lot of ways like desperate to hop on various kinds of bandwagons for $15 an hour minimum wage or possibly a Green New Deal or possibly Medicare for All or something like that. But they don't have really clearly articulated theories of like why they are hopping on left-wing bandwagons that they were not on before of what exactly these things mean to them of how they plan to uh, surmount the like seemingly obvious practical and implementation problems with some of these kinds of ideas, but also have very little intention of standing and fighting for a more centrist vision that they kind of believe in. They seem very, I would say, like surprisingly passive and helpless and being buffeted this way and that in a in a way that I, I, is frankly a little bit distressing to me. Um, I, I kind of felt back in 2007, 2008, like I had a clear sense of where it was that party leaders wanted to go if they took power. Uh, and at this point, I I feel very confused and I don't think it's because I'm confused. I think it's because they are confused.
2: Do you feel like you feel more confused because of these? Like if you think if you if you if you think back and you've been having these conversations, do you think you would have been confused back then? Or like what do you think? Do you think it's like just your vantage point that's changing or the actual party is becoming more confused? I think there,
1: there's an incredible level of flux, I think. And so it's like I keep getting deeper in because there's so much confusion and I'm having more conversations than I did. It used to be pretty. Back in two thousand seven, it was actually like you could get like a pretty quick download from Nancy Pelosi and her team of like what she was all about and what she was trying to do. And like these days, she seems to be um, she's more experienced than ever, and in some ways, as savvier than she's ever been as an operator. But is like trying to like ride this tiger of the House Democratic Caucus, instead of developing a strategic plan for the future. So you like talk to more people, you talk to the people on the left who seem to have momentum on their side, but like, what are they really trying to do? You know, and it's like, right now, there's this incredible emphasis on getting people to say that they support creating a select committee for a Green New Deal. And then you ask them like, well, how, like, how does this work? Like, say you get your way right like like what does that committee do what does the green new deal mean how are you going to deal with the senate and eh, there's not a lot there Sheldon Whitehouse the senator from Rhode Island is a, a smart guy he did this piece for crooked media and then a an interview with with Brian Boitler there where he he outlined what seemed like sixty percent of it was this kind of like fierce fighting dem pitch about how, like, Democrats need to be more hardcore about certain kind of issues, more tactically aggressive, more willing to push the envelope in various ways. But then he, like veered off on this digression about how activists had given too hard of a time to Mary Landrew. And, like, really, they need to recognize, like, the plight of red state senators. And there's like such a huge tension. Between those two ideas. And then in the in the interview with Boiler, um, you know, he asked him, like, so, like, do you think you should get rid of the filibuster so you can move forward on this stuff? And White House was like, no, he didn't think that. So I was just left like, I don't know, like he's a pretty smart guy, Senator Whitehouse. He's been in the Senate for a while. He thinks about this stuff. But his ideas, they just didn't make any kind of sense, like at all to me.
0: So I've always been amazed at the passivity of Congress. Um, and it's something I've, I've tried to write about at different times and have wanted to, to write about it in different ways. And I did this interview on my interview show with Michael Bennett about it about a year ago about it's like, why don't senators, particularly senators, just do more agenda setting? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, why don't eight of them just decide like particularly in a closely divided Senate, like, nope, we're doing this now. And they just don't. And whenever I talk to them about it, the thing that I just always get back is that they're waiting for the president to do it. And that everyone always everywhere in Congress is waiting for the president to define the agenda. And like there are some kind of good reasons for that, although particularly not if you're in the minority or or the president is not of your party. But I think one reason in 07 and 08, you were hearing a lot more crispness from Democrats about what the agenda was, was that the presidential campaign was sharpening it. And there, you know, when I talk to I spent a lot of time talking to Republicans for the past couple of years in Congress and people who are advising Republicans in Congress and saying, like, okay, you guys are not super happy with Donald Trump. But like, why is this going so bad? Like, why does your health care bill like it's a total mess? Like, like every why is everything a calamity over there? And they're like, well, the president is not like playing his role in kind of agenda setting and helping us make choices and be like, okay, well, why don't you do it? And there's like never a good answer. It's just like kind of like, well, we can't or they or, or they can't or they won't or we won't or, you know, it's too hard to coordinate or whatever it might be. But there is just something about. Congress's inability, it's not the inability of individual members of Congress, like whether or not sort of Sheldon Whitehouse's entire framework comes together. It's like you know, if you go look like Bernie Sanders, like Bernie Sanders for years going like way back before his presidential campaign, that guy like has his own agenda. Like he's got a bunch of bills. And if you want to know what Bernie Sanders would like to do, like he can tell you. But congressional parties don't do that effectively. And congressional leaders tend to be people who are good at Managing a bunch of different members of the caucus. Um, this is true for Nancy Pelosi, true for Chuck Schumer, true for, I mean, Paul Ryan was bad at managing his own caucus, Mitch McConnell. It's true for Mitch McConnell. And it was actually interesting because Ryan was very unusual in that he got up to his leadership position through being like an individual member of Congress with an unusually clear set of like his budgets and his yeah. roadmap. And, and it, and it, didn't, work. And it not, didn't work. And it didn't work when not he was a in charge. Job. Yeah, he was completely unable to um, actually do effective agenda setting. So anyway, I do think just like a lot of what you're seeing is that congressional parties absent a presidential leader are just hapless in a way that does not make any sense given the rules of the game, but seems to be true on both sides. My favorite thing along these lines was
1: that a Democratic senator, we were talking about stuff, you know, he was sharing his frustrations with this and that. And he said to me, he's like, and why did we filibuster Neil Gorsuch? And I said to him, I don't know. Why did you filibuster Neil Gorsuch? And he was like, well, I don't know. It's what we decided. I, like, I don't know, man. You know, you're you're the senator. I guess I could tell him why he filibustered Neil Gorsuch. But it's <laughs> Yes, I mean, I, I agree with you. It, it's odd because the thing is, is that the way the Constitution is written, Congress as an institution has the bulk of the policymaking authority, right? But then Congress as a sort of social practice has lost the capacity, it seems, to like work together and drive an agenda. And you know, you, you cited Bernie Sanders, right? Well, it's very clear, like, what is the Bernie Sanders vision Right. He's very clear on vision in a way that some other people aren't. But what he's, I think, not that much clearer than anybody else on is like actually brass tacks, like, like what do you do? Like, what is the priority here? But the, like, especially the more left-wing you get, right? And the more ambitious all your ideas become, then it becomes even more important to be clear to yourself as to like what of these things you actually think is the most important thing to do. And there's very, I mean, we talked a little about this in the in the presidential context. Congress, they're like, even worse than anyone about prioritization, because as you say, they're like, well, the president's going to decide what we should prioritize. But it really makes a tremendous difference, right? Like there is a real, you know, I could compose like a spreadsheet with like 8 million ideas I've heard that like kind of seem like a good idea. A totally separate question is like, which of these ideas is important? Which of them is like actually viable? Like how do they interact with the budgetary process and blah, 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 blah. blah. And it's, I don't know, man, there's like, there's nothing going on there. That's, that's my takeaway. Maybe it'll change.
0: Predictions? Predictions,
1: yeah.
2: Take a break and then... Predict some things?
0: Yeah. I predict we're going to take a break. (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) Nice. The news today seems really grim. And it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect, a show about possible solutions. Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Simply tell
1: the border patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off.
0: Listen to Future Perfect on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Sarah, you want to start?
2: Sure, I'll start. So, I'll do a healthcare prediction as I want to do.
0: I predicted that, just
2: for the record. <laughs> wow, who, who could have seen it coming? <laughs> I think in 2019, some state is going to do something interesting to expand public health insurance. So, we're having this Medicare for all debate. Nothing is going to pass through. Congress, you know, with a uh, Trump still in the White House, the Republicans still controlling the Senate. When I look at D.C., you know, I, I see the next two years as important to the healthcare agenda and the Medicare for All discussion. In that, you'll see some, you know, hearings working towards consensus on like if we gain control in 2020, what is the plan we want? But the place where I actually see more space for. Action is, is looking at state legislatures. And you know, I look at, for example, New Mexico. If you're a healthcare nerd, I would keep an eye on New Mexico because they are probably the state most plausibly in the place of um passing a Medicaid buy-in next year, which would let, you know, other this was an idea that started in Nevada. We've talked about it here on the show, sprinkle care. New Mexico has kind of taken up the mantle there and is looking, you know, it's going to start in early next year, looking to see if they can let people start buying coverage through the Medicaid program. Gavin Newsom, you know, ran on a single-payer platform. I don't think it's going anywhere super soon, given that it would require a lot of federal waivers, but there is a lot of energy in California, you know, around seeing if they can push something forward there. You know, when I look out at the state, I I certainly see a place for some kind of legislative action that would expand public insurance in the way Congress is currently interested in doing, but doesn't have the um, you know, political path to doing it. And that might be a model for federal action. If you look back at the relationship between Massachusetts and the Affordable Care Act, you can pretty easily see how something on a state level gets brought up to the national level. So, so that's what I'm I'm predicting for 2019.
0: Ezra? Ooh. So I was trying to think about what my what is a prediction I have that is not Totally been all because, like I think, like I think Donald Trump will continue to do Trumpy things and some some
1: weird tweets.
0: Um, he's gonna do some weird tweets. So I'm gonna make a prediction about the Mueller report, and I think this prediction is gonna make some people upset, and it also very well may not be correct, but we'll see.
1: It's how I predictions go?
0: <laughs> I think is gonna come out um, no collusion with a, with a report, and it's going to be a huge scandal. I think he's gonna have a lot in there. But like, if you just rewind the clock a couple of years, it's just astonishing what like the sum total of the report brings up. It basically will show collusion between the members of the Trump campaign and either Russia or Russian intermediaries, like WikiLeaks at that uh, at that level. like they knew that emails had been hacked, they knew they were coming out. I think all that's going to be there. But I don't think it's going to be enough to take down or seriously touch Trump. And I think here's like the main prediction. I don't think House Democrats are going to go towards impeachment. When I talk to them, they don't want that. And I think that having won back the House and sort of proving to themselves Donald Trump's electoral vulnerability and with the 2020 campaign getting really underway, I think that there's going to be a lot of hearings. I think there's going to be a lot of like attempting to hold lower level Trump people accountable but the idea that the Mueller investigation is going to be the thing that takes down Trump or the thing that is truly the existential risk to him, I think it's not going to be there. In part because without the Senate, there's like there's no there's no mechanism for it. So, like House Democrats say, no, like they can't impeach the guy or they can't get a impeachment. They can't get him convicted on impeachment charges. And so, I think that that's all going to for all like the buildup of it. I think that the facts of it are going to be really damning. I think it's going to be really interesting how it shapes the 2020 race. But I think that as in, like an actual document that, that changes politics in Washington, I don't think like the structural conditions are there for it to make as big a difference as I think a lot of the people waiting on it have been hoping for or on the, the Trump side fearing. The only addenda I want to put on this is that I do think it's possible one of the people in the Mueller report who really gets nailed is Don Trump Jr. And I don't think it's impossible that Trump begins pardoning his own family or his friends. And if he does that, I think we end up in an all bets are off situation. But I think it'll—it would have to be his response to the report, not the report itself. It would really change the shape of Washington politics. Maybe. <laughs> do, you, do you think that's wrong?
1: No, I mean I—that's like I'm—I'm I'm glad that's a prediction you made. This is like in the zone of things I have absolutely no forecast on. <laughs> I can—I can see I—I I just like change my mind constantly as to what I think is going on here. I
0: could be very wrong about this. It's
1: a. Uh... It's we'll
2: revisit at the end of 2019, Weeds. <laughs> yeah.
1: We'll see. We'll see. Okay. What's My prediction? prediction, I think 2019 is going to be the year of zoning reform. Minneapolis has adopted
0: already a-, a compre- I got to say, you, you and Sarah are really talking your books here.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I've been talking about zoning reform for years and have not been predicting that it will happen. That's fair. So this what is,
2: changed in 2019, or what will change in 2019?
1: OK, so there's there's some things, right? So first, the city of Minneapolis adopted a comprehensive plan just this past week that is going to need implementing legislation, but that is very radical, that it will allow three-unit dwellings uh, on all parcels throughout the city, abolishes parking minimums everywhere, uh, and also has some higher density near mass transit corridors. A couple of smaller cities had abolished parking minimums already, Hartford and Buffalo, but those are very small cities with relatively little demand for construction. Uh, Minneapolis is a city where we'll make a difference. It's also interesting because Minneapolis is not like a dense, super urban city, right? They are like really embracing the just like pure ideological logic Of you shouldn't have parking regulations, I anticipate developers will probably build parking anyway if you've been to Minneapolis. Uh, But I think that that's going to be influential on Sunbelt cities that are more ideologically conservative but not necessarily urbanist in their temperament. Then you also have legislation pending in in California uh, that would – force really big upzoning near all mass transit stations. A state senator named Scott Weiner has this bill. He introduced a bill like that last year, but the coalition politics were not there at all, and it like blew up and died right away. He has a, a tweaked version that I wrote about for the site that has a much stronger coalition behind it. Also, Gavin Newsom, I think... I think the new governor of California is going to want some signature achievements and Jerry Brown has already picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit in terms of signature achievements. He's not going to be able to get the single-payer thing done. So there's like stars aligned for that. Uh, The majority leader in the Oregon uh, state legislature has a bill that would eliminate single family zoning, basically this Minneapolis measure, but throughout the entire state of Oregon. And uh, she's somebody with some real political clout and and influence in that state. Uh, So for the first time, I see not like hot takes people, but like actual elected officials who want to do things acting on this subject. And that to me, that's the biggest change, right? Like the hardest thing to do in politics at all is to get a topic to be on the legislative agenda. So like people who have the ability to green light things are like, yes, we should try to do this. Because once they want to The reform that they're doing in in Minneapolis is not what was initially proposed. It's watered down in some ways. But it was when the mayor decided he wanted a radical overhaul of land use, they wound up getting a version of that, not exactly what he said, but like it was on the agenda, it goes through the process. Uh, whereas if it's not on the agenda, nothing happens. And and housing now is on the agenda. So
2: that's a question. I, so let me ask a question about Minneapolis. They are not like the first city that comes to mind when I think like housing crisis needs zoning yes. reform. Like, what is the deal? What leads to them going forward? I guess not all the way, but pretty far with this comprehensive plan. Like, what is the thing that triggers? that onto the agenda when it hasn't happened before. You
1: know, it's interesting. I mean, I think one thing is actually that Minneapolis is not at all the like poster child for housing scarcity, but by the same token, it went from being like cheap, cheap to actually kind of expensive, like relatively recently. So they sort of just had the transition to scarcity occur at a time when there was all this buzz in the takes world about zoning and things like that. So I think officials there approach this subject with more of an open mind, whereas, you know, New York and California have been fighting about rent control type ideas for like generations at this point. So people are very entrenched in thinking about housing affordability in a particular kind of way, whereas somewhat like in Seattle, I think this is a newer problem and it's being addressed in a, in a more modern mentality that's now filtering into California in New York. The political debate in New York is like in the Stone Ages for reasons that I, I don't really understand.
0: Is one reason this can happen in Minneapolis that it isn't so dense, that people exist on the knife's edge of like seeing something on the other side they don't want Uh, i was thinking about this where if you tried to do this in like an sf or new york or whatever it might be that people are so spun up about Mm. like traffic and they can't park anywhere and a lot of people just want those places to be a lot less dense than they are and it made me wonder if like the possibilities for this kind of reform aren't a lot better in the places that are a lot less dense currently? Yeah, I mean, I do think that's part of
1: it is is that the traffic problem is less accused. I I, I do think another issue, I'm not, I don't want to like speak on behalf of everyone who lives in the Twin Cities area because I, I I know it a little bit and I've spoken to some people there, but I think that there is more of a booster mentality precisely because it's a smaller metro area, right? I don't think that people in New York or people in the Bay Area feel defensive about their city, right? They, like, think of this as, like, obviously these are the greatest places in the world to be, Uh, whereas actually residents of smaller cities like San Antonio, which I I know quite well, and, and Minneapolis, too, there's more of a sense there of people, like, Maybe, like, I want the city to grow because, like, I want the city to be a big deal and we're going to punch higher and people are going to hear about, like, everybody's coming to Minneapolis, you know, um, whereas there's more of a an exclusionary mentality, particularly in New York and San Francisco. Like, the city was perfect when I got here, but, like, now five years later, the person who just showed up is ruining it. I think um, scholars in this field are uncomfortable with with that idea of, of boosterism as an, as an independent variable as opposed to just economics and political institutions. But I actually do think it, it makes a difference. Like do the political officials have a mentality that they want to see the city grow because they want to say like we're number one or do they feel the kind of complacency that I think New York in particular is like – marinating in, like, we are so obviously amazing that the only thing we should think about is how to stop new people from coming here.
0: Hi, Weeds listeners. I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.
1: What are we going to do? White we're going to do our
2: favorite Papers of the Year.
1: Okay, Paper of the Year.
0: I would The one that has influenced me the most. Okay, so I
2: think we all used our own own metrics. I like
1: it. Can you tell us, Sarah? I sure
2: can. Um, So this is actually a paper we did on the show a decent while back. It's a paper called Children and Gender Inequality Evidence from Denmark that was led by um, Hendrik Klevin at Princeton. And this was a really interesting um, study that kind of shaped, uh, that helped crystallize some things I had learned Reporting on the gender wage gap and the role of childbearing. This is the paper we talked about a while ago that looked at the gender wage gap in Denmark. And it showed that the, um, I'll just read from the paper here, that the arrival of children creates a gender gap in earnings of around 20% in the long run, driven in roughly equal proportions by labor force participation, hours of work, and wages. And then one of the things they find also in this paper is that the percentage of the wage gap, and this is data from Denmark that is driven by this child penalty has increased from 40% in 1980 to about 80% in 2013. So the reason I chose this paper was multifold. So one of them is that I think this really was kind of one of the most direct papers I've seen that took on this question of the what is driving the gender wage gap in, in the modern context. And it really showed in amazing data visualizations. I think this is one of the things that made this paper so powerful just how after the birth of a first child, a man's wages in Denmark continue roughly as they were, while a woman's wages drop very significantly, and they never quite recover to that pre-childbearing um, level. And I think so that's one reason I really enjoyed this paper. The other one is that we often hear a lot of things about how great Scandinavia is, and you know, look at how fantastic they are, and all they have all these universal health care and universal education, and wouldn't it be great if we had all these policies... But I think this paper showed, you know, one of the things that has been really hard for Nordic countries to take on and that even, you know, when you go to these countries with strong social support systems and much stronger, you know, much stronger than ours, you still see a really significant wage gap. And, you know, we actually ended up on my other podcast, The Impact, doing a show that dove even deeper into this and... Um, you know, found one of the things that's driving this is that Danish women take way more leave than Danish men. When a baby is born, a Danish couple gets about a year to split up of leave. On average, Danish moms are taking 10 months off and Danish dads are taking one month off. And we did a whole show about kind of what's driving that disparity, which you can listen to. But you know, I think that paper was a nice reminder, you know, not everything is is perfect when you go to these, you know, European, you know, more welfare heavy states that they are struggling with some of the exact issues that we are. So that's my top paper of the year.
1: Yeah. Europe is trash.
2: All right. I'll, I'll
0: also recommend the Netflix Explained episode that yes. Sarah was one of the lead reporters on. Um, And it's just like an awesome look at this and like talks to. The Prime Minister of Iceland.
2: Iceland and Iceland, Hillary, Hillary Clinton.
0: Clinton and um, Greta Van Susteren. It's like a great – it's a great piece of
2: work. Yes. It has charts from this very paper in that episode. Yeah.
0: Visualizations. Computer-generated visualizations. Computer it's generated, cool.
2: Yes. The new charts. Uh, Matt, what do you have? Okay. So I have a
1: paper that we did not discuss on the show because – the conclusion is almost too intuitive, but it's important to me because I used to have a contrarian view on this, and this paper convinced me that I was I was wrong to be contrarian. You want more
2: mainstream, right?
0: Matt? Are you saying this paper? And this is an inside joke that only Matt and I are is counter counter intuitive.
1: Exactly. So, a lot of people <laughs> cool say joke. that, like, well. Maybe if we switch to, like, a more skills-based immigration system and we just brought in in more high-skilled people, that this would diffuse anti-immigrant political sentiment. I, I've been dubious about this on a couple grounds. One is that, like, wonks believe that high-skilled immigrants will be better for economic growth, which I think is very convincing and clearly true. And people just sort of want to tend to believe that, like, good policy will be popular without real evidence. The other is that I always... It always struck me that something people actually like about the American system is that immigrants tend to come in and slot in at low places in the socioeconomic spectrum and then you have intergenerational upward mobility as people you know sort of learn languages and, and assimilate and, and come up and that people might actually resent having immigrants come in and be slotted like on top of them in the socioeconomic hierarchy. At any rate, Simon Morricone, Giovanni Perry, and Riccardo Torati, three Italian economists, uh, they took a a very rigorous study at this, at least in in Europe, and they showed that like, no, Matt's contrarianism is wrong, the conventionalism is right, and that among working class voters, which is the majority of people, uh, when you bring in low-skilled immigrants, there's a big tendency to vote for new nationalist parties, but when you bring in high-skilled immigrants, there's a small impact in the opposite direction. So the effects aren't symmetrical, right? There's like big backlash to low-skilled immigrants and a like small prolash to highly skilled immigrants, but the direction of the change is sort of as the proponents uh, accepted and these guys are actually very pro-immigration scholars. Uh, so e- even though it's it's superficially similar to some of Tom Cotton's proposals, like they say basically like, well, Europe should make it easier for skilled migrants to come here. And that's – I guess to get a counterintuitive spin, they're saying that letting it – making it easier to immigrate to Europe might actually diffuse anti-immigrant sentiment, right, if you created like formal legal channels for work-based skilled migration instead of just having uh, asylum seekers sort of wash up hither and yon, uh, that this would help. Um, It might not be true in America. This is a study of Europe. Uh, But given that a lot of people like already think that this is true, um, I think we now have some some good empirical support for it. I've officially changed my mind. Uh, Skilled immigrants would be a good political strategy.
0: That's actually a good bridge to my paper. My paper is called Racial and Political Dynamics of an Approaching Majority-Minority United States. It's by Maureen Craig and Jennifer Richardson. Um, For much more on this, I, I had Jennifer Richardson on the K show, um, and she was one of my favorite interviews of the year. But th- this paper, it is, it's is—it's really a survey of research in this area, a survey of Richardson and Craig's research, which is really foundational here, but but also some other people's. And it's basically looking at what we know happens— When people feel that their particular ethnic group is losing numerical or political dominance in a country and they have all kinds of interesting experiments that they do. Um, One of the one of the basic ones being that you give some people a piece of paper that just like tells them that actually one of the experiments specifically is you give some white political independence a piece of paper that uh, an article that says Hispanics are gaining on African-Americans in terms of of numbers in America and you give others uh, something that says that uh, non-white people are gaining on white people and America is going to become majority minority racially by 2040. And what they they show is that in the second condition, which is where um, white people feel a threat to their dominance in America – You get huge uh, changes towards conservatism, towards the Republican Party as a party, but also towards conservatism on just all kinds of policy issues, that they become more conservative on taxes, on on, on all kinds of stuff. And... There are a lot of studies showing this. It's replicated in a lot of different contexts, a lot of different times. By the way, it holds true for other ethnic groups, too. So it's like it's true if you tell African-Americans about rising Hispanic population, true if you tell the Hispanic population about a rising Asian population. Like whoever you look at, though if people feel under threat, it turns them more conservative. It turns them, um, again, on issues and on party allegiance. They become more likely to vote for Republicans. They become more likely to, to favor Republican Party policies. And it's a very good paper for thinking about what was going on in the election with Donald Trump, where Donald Trump ran in a way that was extremely uh, dedicated to activating this concern that America was becoming a different country than it had been. And, and you, you traditional white American, were not going to hold as, as much power. Obviously, Donald Trump comes up in the aftermath of of barack obama who represented this even if he also worked very hard in his rhetoric to calm concerns around this um, but also hillary clinton the way she ran was stronger together and, and running more explicitly as a candidate of a new rising multiracial young diverse coalition that also activated a lot of this and so they have this quote in the paper where they say Although Trump's election was determined by many factors, it was perhaps due in large part to unrecognized at the time social and political dynamics stemming from the very demographic shifts that had previously engendered enthusiasm among Democrats and pessimism among Republicans. And and what they're saying there is that what this research suggests is that far from um, demographic change helping Democrats, which it, it could do, but if it activates um, this like fear in white America, which remains a, a majority coalition in this country and will for quite some time. It could like you could see such a strong push towards the Republican Party and towards conservatism that it overwhelms the, the, the changing demographics, at least if the rhetoric and politics of that are not very carefully handled. So that was a paper that, that helped contextualize a lot of stuff for me and helped change my thinking a little bit on like what was going on in American politics and why we were seeing some of the dynamics we were seeing. Like Everything I've seen since confirms it, both like in terms of political science research and in terms of actual political practice. But it, it, it was helpful for me this year.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good one. You know, I, I read a sort of related paper that sort of dug into the the demographic facts to sort of ask like, how true is it really that America is becoming a majority minority country? Mm-hmm. You know, under alternate definitions. And one of the things they showed was that if you if you characterize the trends differently, that you know, white people feel more optimistic, sort of about the future and develop less conservative political views. And it's like, it really made me wonder about how much of what's happened over the past, you know, couple years in politics has been driven by a a couple of slightly idiosyncratic decisions on the part of the Census Bureau as to like how to characterize people who have one grandparent who immigrated from Mexico, um, plus a sort of like, liberal like a media tendency to like hype this up this majority minority America concept when I think like the the reality on the ground of like a country in which a large and growing share of people have partial Asian or Latin American ancestry may just not quite look as different from the majority white America, as people kind of have in mind. But then these categories, like this whole thing is socially constructed. So it like, it depends how we want to how we want to talk about multiracial people and like what we want to make of attenuated Hispanic identity. To raise my hand, like, I think about this all the time, personally, because like, one of my grandparents was born is the child of two immigrants from Cuba. And, like, he grew up in a Spanish-speaking household and what was definitely, like, a Hispanic community, and they had different verbiage at that time, but he was definitely one of the Latins in Tampa. But then, like, he married a Jewish immigrant, and then their son married a sort of conventional New York outer boroughs uh, Jewish person, my mom. And so, like, now here's me with a Spanish last name and, like, some Latin American ancestry and I am per the census, like part of the new majority minority America, but like I am a a white person to everybody who has ever like seen me or talked to me um, or been confused that I don't speak Spanish uh, or or something like that. And it, it just, it makes me wonder like how much like I don't want to say alarmist media coverage, but just like overhyped media coverage has driven then alarm among people.
0: So a, a couple thoughts on that. So this is something that Professor Richardson is very uh, is very eloquent and annoyed about this uh-huh. whole verbiage <laughs> of majority minority America. Like she thinks it's terrible. It's like the the way because you too right as we're like cons- this is
1: a majority minority
0: podcast right? yes. <laughs> but
1: like nobody thinks that
0: <laughs> right. And it's funny actually. Uh, and as you say right, like I think of myself as white. Like if you ask me like what to, to put on, like I could. I could claim something else just based on like my father's an immigrant and and so on, but, but like I'm clearly a white person. But like pe- people um, would think we but, were but let me full let me if we le- right. Well, we would yeah. be, and but <laughs> also like there, there's there is construction and there is like it, it also has to do with how we grew up, right? Somebody else with very similar parentage to us who's grown up in a different way, like I think we could claim something differently, and that would be true too. The the thing that I want to get at here though is that. I I am not a believer in the view that you can just kind of blunt this with like a little bit of rhetorical care for two reasons. One is that, and I was really shocked when I found this out, people's perceptions of what is happening in in terms of racial shift are way ahead of what is actually happening. So we are projected under these definitions that we're talking about, which are are problematic in, in the ways we're talking about them. Um, you know, like that—that there that they're, the, many of the people who we think might be part of this like majority minority America like might actually be white. Um, but people think it's already happened. Like that's supposed to happen in 2040. But if you ask people what the current demographic composition of the country is, they think that change has already happened. And one reason they seem to think that change has already happened is if like you look around, a lot is going on. You press. You know, you have to press one for English. Barack Obama was just president. You look at um, there's been a really, really sharp rise in non-white representation in Hollywood, which has created a lot of like cultural then backlash among whites who feel like they're 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 losing something there. Um, like all of these fights over you know like is it a big deal that Marvel has non-white superheroes or not? Like it, it, it turns out that actually um, white people feel very upset when they start to to, to lose some of that too. And then the, the other thing that's really influenced me on this is how little of a push it takes to, to change people's um, perceptions here. So Ryan Enos, who's a political scientist at Harvard, did a really fascinating experiment, which was very unusually experimental. I mean, usually with this stuff, you get either observational work or you get, you know, we did some surveys. We gave people like an article. We changed some of the words in the article. He put Spanish speakers on trains in Boston. Like he he put for a while, he would have like two guys speaking Spanish on a train in Boston. And um, he would like he would survey the people who got on that train and got off that train. And, and he did it. Re- it's a really, really well done study that can do this at a higher level of rigor. And he found in a liberal part of Massachusetts that if people just began in their commute hearing more Spanish nearby. So it's a pretty small nudge about whether or not there's change going on in their community. They became more conservative. They had no idea this had happened to them. Like it had not. It was a very light experimental nudge. But the the reaction they had to it was pretty, was pretty profound. So it's like to me, when you put all that together, when you put together like groups getting strong enough, they're able to elect, say, an African-American president, right, which the Obama coalition couldn't have done in 88. And you get like, like actual changes in the country and in the culture and people's sensitivity to these changes because like recognizing group is very, very deeply ingrained in us. And then you get the kind of political merchants on both sides because if you read how like Tucker Carlson talks about this on Fox News or how Donald Trump talks about it as the president. While it may be true that like the Census Bureau could be a little bit more careful, I think that like the, the reality of it is that politics ends up magnifying these changes in the culture and culture ends up like quickly moving these changes forward. And so the um the likely outcome, far from it being that this stuff is overhyped, is that it's actually underhyped and it's going to, it's it's already upending our politics. And I think we're gonna go through a, a pretty extended period of it being really really definitional until and unless we get to some kind of like more stable political power equilibrium
1: happy new year <laughs> uh,
0: i have a long piece on this called white thread in a browning america if you would like to read more of my endless my divisive
1: battles over ethnic identity until america is subsumed by war That's as and that'll ready. bring <laughs> us all together that'll end the polarization i'm, I'm looking forward to the book <laughs> 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 sounds fun um <laughs> So with that, uh, thank (laughs) everyone for listening. It has been a great year. Uh, It is uh, always, to be honest, the most validating, uh, enjoyable part of of my job is is doing the show and hearing from readers uh, in our our Ask Anythings or or inboxes uh, coming to the live shows. I really love it. I really uh, appreciate uh, all of you out there. And we're looking forward to another great year of podcasting next year. Just want to give a We've shout out to uh, Sonia Herrero for uh, working as our engineer on this episode. And we will see you all in the new year.